Well, we are continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, and uh, we really are in kind of the second movement of the book. Genesis chapter 1 to 11 introduces us to an all-powerful God who created everything out of his goodness and his mercy and his love. And what we see is that he is still working to renew and to restore the world that we broke. And now we're kind of in this second movement of the book in which we're looking at what does it mean to actually walk with a God like that by looking at the life of Abraham and seeing what it means to daily trust God in the face of all the challenges that we encounter. And along the way, we've kind of seen some different things that threaten Abraham's relationship with God. In our first week in looking at Abraham's life, we saw how Abraham's own fears get in the way of really trusting God. And this past weekend, we really looked at how Abraham's doubts get in the way of him trusting God. And yet what we see over and over and over again is how God speaks into Abraham's fears and doubts by giving him his promises and giving him his presence promises and presence. And yet, uh, now as we come to the third week in our study of the life of Abraham, uh, what we find is that there's another thing that threatens his relationship with God, and that's actually Abraham's plans. Uh, and to, to illustrate what I'm talking about, um, I wanted to share a little bit about what's going on in the life of our family right now. You see, March is birthday month in the Price household. All three of my kids were born in March. Jenny, uh, her birthday is right at the beginning of April, which means that this kind of sets off a month-long extravaganza of baking. Our house is filled with cupcakes and cakes and cookies as we celebrate all these different kinds of uh, birthdays and celebrations. And I'll be honest, Jenny does most of the baking. Now, it's not because I don't want to help out in the kitchen. I love to cook. But when it comes to baking, you want me as far away from that oven as possible because I will inevitably screw up any baking project that I put my hands to. Uh, in some ways, I think I really sympathize with all those people who post online about their baking projects that they uh, attempted and, uh, and failed at. Maybe you're familiar with this internet phenomenon called Nailed It where people show a picture of what they were trying to create, and then they actually show you the finished product. And, and I just wanted to share a couple of those uh, with you. Uh, like, take this one, for example. I I'm looking at this. Obviously, this person set out to make these beautiful rubber ducky cupcakes, and yet the final project looks like just a bunch of melted peeps. Like, it just went horribly wrong. Or or how about this one? Person setting out to make this, this wonderful little hedgehog, and instead they produce some sort of pink rabid badger. I mean, that's the best that I can summarize this thing as. Or, or here's this one. This is perfect for Easter time, right? You know, you want to make that nice, cute little lamb cake, and instead what you get is the spray-painted terrier. I mean, these are just, this is what would happen if I was in charge of the baking in our household. This is the reason why I trust Jenny with these projects. Because the, the truth is, is even when we stick to the script, we can mess up horribly. And so it gets far worse when we pridefully think that we know better. When we pridefully think that we've got this all planned out and we know exactly what to do, and yet we never actually consult God and try to do things in his ways according to his timing. And that's important because that's exactly what's going on in our text for today as we take a look in Genesis chapter 16. 
because it's in chapter 16 that we see the ways in which Abraham and Sarah's plans actually threaten all of God's promises. So if you've got your scripture journal with you or you've got your Bible on hand, let's go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 16. And and let me summarize this story so far. Right before this, in Genesis 15, Abraham had been expressing all of his doubts to God. Talking about how, you know, God, you, you promised me this land and yet I get here and it's only filled with famine. And you promised me a family and yet we're here and we're still barren and we have no children. And God makes this incredible covenant with Abraham in which he says, I will fulfill my promise to you. You will have a child. And he makes this, this, this commitment in this covenant ceremony in which he basically says, and if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, and if you don't fulfill my end, uh, your end of the covenant, you can do to me what we did to these animals. And they'd made this sacrifice. And it was a sign that God was willing to fulfill his promises to Abraham even unto death. That's really what God was saying. He's like, even unto death, I will fulfill everything that I have promised to you. Now, you'd think on the heels of that incredible expression of God's love, we would be good to go. And yet, right here in chapter 16, this is what we read. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, So go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. See, what we find is right on the uh, the heels of God's incredible promises to the two of them, Abraham and Sarah hatch a plot to get a child at any cost. They decide to take Sarah's slave girl, her servant woman, Hagar, and basically give her to Abraham as a concubine so that any heirs that she produced would actually be considered Sarah's children and that they would get the promise. And, and, and Hagar is just being used in this way in order for them to secure the blessing according to their own means. Now, if you're listening to that story and you're like, this is horrible. This is, this is, this is one of the things that, this is why the Bible is so backward. This is why this story is so ridiculous. And, and honestly, if it makes you mad, then know that you're in good company because this is a horrible story. This is a terrible story of human exploitation. And I think that this is really important for us to at least give voice to and to understand. Abraham's story is not a hero story. In fact, the Bible is brutally honest about human wickedness and selfishness. In fact, the very way that this story is told shows that God does not condone this course of action. Because we see in sharp detail how this plan by Abraham and Sarah actually unleashes devastating consequences in their own lives and in the, life of the, and in the lives of those around them. It paints a picture of what happens when we allow our plans to get in the way of God's promises. I mean, let's, let's take a look at the details for just a second. Notice that this whole thing starts as Sarah's idea. 
it says this. It says, Sarah is the one who came up with this whole arrangement. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant so that I can get children through her. And this is crazy because of the fact that, that Sarah had previously been the one who had been a victim of commodification and objectification by her own husband. When they went down into Egypt, he lied about her. He, he passed her off as his sister and didn't lift a finger when she was taken by Pharaoh into his own household, into his own harem to become his wife. Now, luckily, God delivered her from that. But what we see is now here, Sarah has become the oppressor, commodifying and objectifying a fellow woman. And this is important for us to understand because this is a point that the Bible makes over and over and over again is that you don't do sin, sin does you. That we are so wrapped up in the brokenness of our world that it's hard to see where we begin and sin ends. That because we're constantly trapped in these cycles, we're not only victims, but we're victimizers. And that's exactly what's happening in Sarah's story. She is bought into the thinking of her day in which women are viewed as less than men and where slaves are viewed as less than free people. And she just perpetuates this cycle of injustice in handing Hagar over to her husband to be used in this way. It is a horrible expression of human wickedness and injustice. And worse, what we find is that Abraham, the guy who should know about God's promises all along, goes along with it. It actually says pretty explicitly that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. He listened to her. This is from the guy who previously had been listening to God, who in chapter 12, verse 4, when God says go, he listens and he goes to the promised land. Then in chapter 15, verse 6, when God tells Abraham that he's going to give him all of, that he's going to give him a, a large family and he's going to give him this blessing, it says that he, he trusted in God, he believed in God, and yet here he's now listening to a voice other than the Lord's. And again, this is important for us to wrestle with because when we desire something, we often allow other voices to then get us off track, whether those voices come from within ourselves or they come through the lips of others. Abraham desires more than anything to have a child. And so when his wife comes along with this plan, he just kind of goes along with it because it's, it speaks to the deepest desires of his heart. And back in those days, this was something that you could legally do. Now, we look back on that and we say, that's horrible. That's, that's so backward and terrible. And we're right as modern people to be that outraged because it is. And yet, Abraham doesn't think twice about it because not only are the, is the world around him telling him it's okay, his own wife is telling him to do this. And so he just goes with the flow regardless of what God has promised, regardless of what God has told him before. And furthermore, we find that later on when the going gets tough, Abraham tries to absolve himself of all responsibility. That later on when Hagar now starts to despise her mistress for doing this to her and Sarah comes to Abraham and complains about it, what does he say? He says, well, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. 
See, these cycles of sin and injustice and brokenness have just thoroughly wrapped up this family. And this cycle of brokenness doesn't just affect Abraham and Sarah. It affects Hagar and her child Ishmael. It becomes, their household becomes this place of strife in which their very family is being torn apart by hurt, hatred, and betrayal. This is what happens when we allow our plans to get in the way of God's promises. You see, the point that I want to make here is this. It is possible, even when we're following God, to suddenly exchange him for an idol and not even realize it. It is possible, even when we're following God, to suddenly exchange him for an idol and not even realize that we're doing it. And and the way this happens is when we start to desire God's promises more than his purposes. And when we start to pursue his stuff rather than longing for his presence. See, Abraham and Sarah wanted the promise more than they wanted God. And in this moment of temptation, they end up giving in to the ways of the world in a way that actually unleashes even greater brokenness and injustice in their lives and in the lives of people around them. And and it actually directly threatens everything that God had promised to Abraham. This promise of a family that would grow into a nation that would bring his blessings to to all the families of the earth is now threatened because now not only is this child not from Abraham and Sarah, but furthermore, Hagar in, in her hurt and in her pain runs away, far away from them. You see, we can get so addicted to what God can give us that we use our faith and our religion as a justification for doing what we feel will satisfy are the deepest longings of our heart. And when that happens, everything and everyone is nothing more but a means to an end. We dehumanize and we exploit anyone or anything that gets in the way of us pursuing our own self-sanctified and self-justified ends. See, this is at the heart of what sin is all about. I actually remember reading a quote from the Japanese Christian author Shusako Endo. In his book, Silence, he said this. He said, sin is not what it is usually thought to be. It's not to steal and to tell lies. Sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and to be quite oblivious of the wounds he has left behind. Abraham and Sarah don't even give a second thought to Hagar. They don't give a second thought to what this has done to her and to her life. Why? Because they've justified what they've done in light of trying to pursue God's promises without actually understanding his purposes. To pursue his stuff without really longing for his presence. And we can do the same thing We get so wrapped up in maybe a promise that God has given us that when we don't get it, we become angry, frustrated, and bitter. And so then we try to pursue those things in any way that we feel that we should, but the result is it, it doesn't lead to satisfaction for us, and oftentimes it leads us to take advantage of the people around us. What about you? I mean, are there promises maybe that God has made to you? Things that you've been clinging to, but because they haven't shown up in the timing that you think they should or in the way that you think they should, you've become a little bit bitter, angry, frustrated, upset. I think if we're all honest, we've had those moments. 
And there's a danger there in, in, in that maybe we're pursuing God's promises, but not his presence. Maybe we're longing more for what we can get rather than longing for him. That's really what Endo was talking about in that quote, that all the other things that we do to other people, they often stem from and are the fruit that's born of, of being quite oblivious to the lives of people around us as we pursue our own ends and our own desires. It's a dangerous place to be. And what we see is that it leads Hagar to flee, to run. She runs far away from the Lord. And, and so the question is, how is God going to fix this? How is he going to fix this broken family? How is he going to maintain his promises in the face of their selfishness and their pride and their wickedness? The answer comes in the encounter that Hagar has with the God who sees. I want you to take a look at this with me for just a few moments as we look at the rest of the story. We read in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You see, in the midst of Hagar's pain, in the midst of this injustice, we find that God does two things for her. The first thing that he does is he finds her. I love how it says that in, in verse 7. He is seeking her. He doesn't let her go. He searches her out and lets her know that she is seen by him, that he understands her pain and what she's going through. But then the second thing he does in verse 10 is he provides for her. He says, even in the face of this injustice, I, I am not going to leave you nameless. I'm not going to leave you purposeless. I am going to make you into a great nation. I will provide for your future. I will provide for your child. It's this beautiful reassurance to her that though she was born into a situation in which she finds herself a slave with no rights, with no one to defend her, God says, I will defend you. I see you and I will protect you. This is one of the things that I think is hard for us as modern people to really wrestle with because he does tell her to go back to go back and to serve her mistress, the very one who wronged her. But what God is saying is he's saying, but even in the face of that, I will be with you, I will provide for you, and you will become a great nation. That's his whole commitment to her. And, and the reality is, is that he, as bad as that is, it's probably better than her being alone, being alone without any protection, being alone in a, in a world at a time that exploited women. He's saying, this is the best way that you can be protected, but know this, even though it's bad, I will be with you and I will not let you go. I will provide for what you need. God's promise is that he's going to walk with her through the brokenness. That's his commitment to her. But it does get a little bit puzzling because then after making these promises, God goes on and he says this, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. Now we read that and we're just like, well, what kind of blessing is that? That really doesn't seem like a very encouraging thing to say to her. But we need to keep in mind the difference between a blessing and a foretelling. 
God's blessing to her is that he's going to make her into a great nation. She's going to have offspring that no one can count. But then what he's saying is he's saying, but honestly, he's going to be like the rest of the people of the world at that time. He's going to face all the challenges that everybody else faces. What God is saying here is he's saying, I am going to bless you, but I'm not giving up on my promises. See, what, what this tells us is that God does not allow human wickedness to foil his promises. Uh, what's happening here is not a blessing. It's a description. It's utterly realistic about what Hagar and her son will face in a broken world. But really what he's reminding her and what he eventually reminds Abraham and what he ultimately wants to remind us as readers is that his promises will not be foiled or thwarted by human plans he is still going to bring his blessing to the nations through Abraham, even though Abraham has been faithless. But he's going to do so on his timetable and according to his purposes. His hand is not going to be forced by anyone. But that is good news for us because what it tells us is that even in the midst of injustice and brokenness, God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. They will not fall short. This is good news in a way because what it says is that even if we've messed up, God will remain faithful. And that even if the brokenness around us seems so overwhelming, none of it is too big for God. In his power and wisdom, he is able to bring forth goodness even in the midst of darkness and brokenness. And what that means for Hagar is that even though she continues to live in a broken world, God is not going to leave her or forsake her. He promises to walk through uh, with her through the brokenness until the day that his purposes reach their completion. And that promise is for us too. I don't know where you're sitting, whether you're Abraham and Sarah in this story or you're Hagar in this story. Maybe you're the one that's screwed up. Maybe you know that you've done something that, that's threatened all the promises God has ever made you and you're wondering, can God still bring blessing into my life or have I messed it up too badly? The answer here in this text is God is still at work and hasn't given up on you. Or maybe you're Hagar and you're thinking about the pain that you've endured and the suffering that you continue to face at the hands of people or circumstances, and you're wondering, is there any way out? Is there any way that God can possibly do anything good through all of this? His promise here is that he is with you, he sees you, he knows, and he will not let you go. In the midst of this horrible story, God's goodness is still moving forward. And that is a, wor that is a word of encouragement that we need in a world of brokenness. And the way that we know that we have a God who does this is because he's not only the God who sees, he's the God who suffers. I mean, think about the symbol that's at the very heart of the Christian faith. It's a cross. It's, a, it's an instrument of execution. I don't think that we really wrestle with that in modern times today, but, but when like, especially when we hang crosses around our necks or we get them tattooed on our arms or we print, screen print them on shirts or we have them hanging up on our walls, what we fail to realize is that doing that would have been kind of like putting up a, an electric chair or a lethal injection. This was an instrument of torture and execution in the ancient world. It was horrible. There's a reason why we don't find the cross in any Christian artwork for the first couple centuries of the church because it was so horrible. And yet think about this. In the face of the greatest injustice, God brought the greatest blessing. 
Jesus was absolutely innocent, yet he was wrongly accused, wrongly tortured, and wrongly executed. And in a moment where all of his disciples had given up on him, where people looked at him and said, how could anything good possibly come from this? God used it to bring grace, mercy, forgiveness, and new life. That through the cross and on the other side of it, God brought the empty tomb. This is the kind of God that we have, who's willing to not ignore the brokenness of our world, but sees it, not only sees it, but enters into it. And as he walks with us through it, he transforms it for his ultimate good, to bring his ultimate blessing. And when we know that we have a God like that, it allows us to live differently in a violent and unjust world. Jesus constantly tells his disciples things like we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That would seem crazy if it weren't for the fact that we know we have a God who will one day make all things new. And so we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands. We don't have to fight back or get even. We can live differently and bring grace and mercy and forgiveness in ways that are transformative because we know we have a God who can take even the broken things of this world and bring forth beauty. And that's his promise to us in Jesus. That when we look at the brokenness of our own lives, God says, I'm not done with your story. That when we look at the brokenness in the world around us, God says, this will not have the final word. My plans and my promises will continue to move forward. And I promise that I will walk with you even in the face of injustice until the day when I come again to make all things new. And so we can be at peace and we can have hope. That we can say with Hagar, truly there is a God and he's a God who sees me. Truly, there is a God, and he is a God who has found me and who walks with me, who will daily sustain me and ultimately deliver me. That's the hope that we find in this story. That's the hope that we have in this text. And so the invitation here, really the, the, the first, the warning is to desire God more than you desire his stuff. But secondly, to cling to a God who is present with us even in the face of such overwhelming brokenness and to walk with him faithfully, knowing that one day he will make all things new. So it's with that in mind, I want to invite you to pray with me. Would you pray? Lord God, we, we confess the ways in which oftentimes we want your promises more than we want you. And as we try to take those promises and grasp those blessings on our own terms, we know that we unleash more brokenness in our own lives and in the lives around us. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. But, Lord, we also pray that in the face of overwhelming brokenness and injustice, we would remember that you are the God who sees us and who walks with us that you promise you will take all the broken pieces of our lives and of this world and you will make them new. So forgive us, Lord. Help us to set our eyes on you. Help us to trust you and walk with you in faith that we might live differently in a broken world, that we might live in a way that points people to you and your grace and your mercy and that transformation and good news and grace would flow forward even in the darkest of places. We lift this up to you in the name of your son, Jesus. 
the one who came, died, and rose again. And it's in his name that we say, Amen.